Luke is a writer, and he writes Acts chapter 3, verse 1. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and enter the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, All the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also you rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the people, all the prophets, that as Christ should suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out, The times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time of restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of the holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your father, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Amen. And this is the word of God. O Lord, as we study this passage from the Bible together, we pray that in a very real sense, we may fall at your feet. 
may your word be our rule, your spirit our guide, and your glory our supreme aim. For Jesus' sake. Amen. As we've learned in recent weeks, the book of Acts was written by Luke as a sequel to his gospel. He tells us in chapter 1 how in his gospel he had dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until his ascension. The implication is that in this second book, Luke is going to tell us all that Jesus continued to do and teach, no longer in person, but now by the power of his Spirit. Two weeks ago, we looked at what happened on the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit came down on the fledgling church, and the disciples and other believers began to speak in a variety of languages. The evidence of Jesus' power at work gave Peter the opportunity to explain to the bemused crowds what these things meant. And so he proclaimed the good news about Jesus. Not only did some 3,000 people become Christians on that day, but the members of the growing church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. The exponential growth of the church will be a key feature of the book. Here in chapter 3, we have further evidence of Jesus' power at work as a lame man is healed in the temple precincts. Again, Peter exploits the interest generated by the miracle to preach about Jesus. And again, many people respond to the message. But this time, storm clouds are gathering. Peter and John are arrested and thrown into prison. The church is growing, but there's also opposition and persecution. And that has been the story of the church down through the centuries. I'd like to look at this chapter with you under two simple headings. First, a miracle performed in the name of Christ. And secondly, a message focused on the identity and work of Christ. First, a miracle performed in the name of Christ. As Peter and John are going up to the temple one afternoon to pray, they see a man who's been lame from birth, begging at one of the gates in the temple precincts. He asks them for alms, and when Peter calls for his full attention, he expects that he's going to receive something. But Peter makes clear to him that he has no money to give him. He goes on to say, what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Not only is the beggar not going to get any money, he's being asked to do the seeming impossible. But he responds as Peter stretches out his hand and lifts him up. 
And as he does so, he finds unaccustomed strength in his feet and ankles. He has been given something money can't buy, and he's overjoyed. He won't let Peter and John go, and he creates a stir as he follows them around. He's walking and leaping and praising God. It's not the sort of behavior you expect to see in the temple. In recent years, they've excavated some of the steps leading up to the temple. And an interesting feature is that they're not uniform. The reason for that was to stop people running up and down them. Well, here's a man jumping for joy within the temple courts. Just imagine the commotion that must have caused in these staid surroundings. In no time at all, a crowd would have gathered. Those who were regular temple goers knew the man well. They were well aware of his previous disability. Not surprisingly, Luke says, they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Peter boldly attributes the healing to the power of Jesus. He makes clear that it hasn't been accomplished in his own strength. Men of Israel, he tells the assembled crowd, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us? As if uh, through our, our, by our own power or piety, we have made him walk. Verse 16, Jesus' name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Let me address at this point a question which I suspect some of you are asking. If a physical healing like this occurred in the early days of the church, does that make physical healing normative for the church in every generation? Should we expect to see dramatic physical miracles like this nowadays? Well, let me say, first of all, that Jesus can still perform miracles. His power is no less than it was. Not only can he still perform such miracles, he may still do so in certain circumstances. But I don't think physical miracles are the norm. The miracles Jesus performed when he was on earth pointed to his divine identity and often illustrated in the physical realm the spiritual work he'd come to do. Similarly, the miracles performed by the apostles in the book of Acts demonstrated that Jesus was still at work in and through the church. They also showed that with the birth of the church had come the promised messianic age. One of the predictions the prophet Isaiah makes about the messianic age is that then shall the lame man leap like a deer. I think Luke wants us to see that prophecy fulfilled in the healing of this lame man in Acts chapter 3. As if to underscore the point, 
he uses a rare Greek word for leaping. And it's the same word which is used in Isaiah's prophecy in the Greek translation of the Old Testament widely used in the first century. Even within the pages of the New Testament, there is less focus on supernatural physical manifestations in the later epistles than there is in the earlier ones. I think the evidence suggests that physical miracles were primarily intended for a specific time and for a specific purpose, and so are no longer the norm. But miracles are still a regular feature of church life. It requires a miracle for anyone to be healed of spiritual disabilities, to be brought from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. And it's by the Spirit's supernatural power that Christians are progressively changed from the inside out and equipped with everything good for doing God's will. A miracle performed in the name of Christ. Secondly, we have a message focused on the identity and work of Christ. As we have seen, Peter is anxious to deflect attention from himself. He's at pains to attribute the miracle to Jesus and tell people about him. The point of the miracle needs to be explained. That's true of all physical miracles. They need to be explained or they will simply be taken at face value. Of those who saw the miracles Jesus performed when he lived on earth, I wonder how many people ever deduced from them that he was God in human form. No doubt there was genuine appreciation of the bread and fish he miraculously supplied on more than one occasion to feed thousands of people. But how many of these same people came to him to ask for spiritual food? What Luke records for us here is probably just a summary of Peter's sermon. It's likely he spoke at greater length. But what we have is an accurate resume. The message is a call to Peter's Jewish audience to repent of the rejection of Jesus as the Messiah. Note with me how Peter establishes the identity of Jesus. In verse 13, Jesus is described as God's servant. In verse 14, he's the holy and righteous one. These are messianic terms which would have been familiar to a Jewish audience. Then, in verse 15, he's the author of life, which points to his being God. Actually, what Peter says is, you killed the author of life. That's what we call an oxymoron, a figure of speech in which contradictory ideas are placed side by side. You killed the author 
of life. Jesus was the one who created life in the first place. But the startling fact is that he was himself killed at the hands of those he had created. His own human life was snuffed out. That was possible only because he willingly gave up his life as a ransom for many. And yet there is profound mystery and wonder in the fact that the Creator died at the hands of wicked men. In his song, The Servant King, Graham Kendrick makes a similar point when he speaks about hands that flung stars into space to cruel nails surrendered. Then in verse 17, Peter describes Jesus as God's anointed one, his Christ, the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew Messiah. All these titles point to who Jesus is. As well as explaining his identity, Peter proclaims what Jesus has done. He highlights, in particular, his death and subsequent resurrection. He says to his Jewish hearers, you killed Jesus, but God raised him from the dead. And he adds, to this we are witnesses. These are important words. To this we are witnesses. The Christian gospel is based on attested facts, supremely the facts relating to the life, death, resurrection and ascension of Jesus. Facts are fundamental to the gospel. Christianity is more than a set of ideas. It's more than a philosophy of life. It's focused on a real person who lived a real life in the real world. And if the tomb on Easter morning wasn't empty, then our faith is worthless If you're interested in exploring Christianity, you need to consider the facts. Read one of the Gospels. Look at the evidence for the resurrection. For Christianity stands or falls on the facts. Peter also tells his audience that Jesus is coming back again. He says in verse 21 that heaven must receive him until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. So we see that Peter's message focuses on a dying, resurrected, and returning Messiah. Peter places Jesus firmly in the context of Old Testament revelation. In verse 13, he doesn't simply refer to God as God. He calls him the God of Abram, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers. He wants his audience to know that the God he's speaking about is the God they claim to worship to, the God of the patriarchs, the God of Abram, Isaac, and Jacob. In verse 17, Peter says, What God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. 
He's making the point that Jesus' death didn't take place in a vacuum. It was foretold by the prophets and fulfilled their predictions. The same is true of Jesus' second coming, which has also been foretold. The last few verses of the chapter have a sustained focus on Jesus as the fulfillment of all that Old Testament Judaism taught. Look with me, please, at verse 22. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. Moses was revered by the Jews. He was revered as the man whom God had used to deliver his people from slavery in Egypt but he was also revered as the first of the prophets. Well, says Peter, Moses prophesied that an even greater prophet would come. And he also said that how people responded to him would have far-reaching consequences. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. Peter saying, you Jews think highly of Moses, and you have every reason to do so. But Jesus is even greater. He is the great prophet of whom Moses spoke. And those who refuse to listen to him will exclude themselves from God's covenant family and will forfeit God's blessing forever. The stakes couldn't be higher. Peter goes on in verse 24, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days. Samuel was considered the next prophet after Moses. He was particularly associated with God's promise to establish the kingdom of David. He and the later prophets all looked forward to the day when Great David's greater son would come and sit on David's throne. Well then, Peter is saying, that day has now arrived. And what are you doing about King Jesus? Moses, Samuel. Then, in an interesting but not entirely unexpected twist, Peter ends his sermon by going back to Abram with whom he began. Verse 25, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your father, saying to Abram, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Abram was the greatest of the patriarchs, the father of the Jewish race. God made a covenant with him. He promised that he and his offspring would be his people and he would be their God that he would bless them and in turn make them a blessing to the whole world. Peter is saying, God has now provided his supreme blessing in the person of his son Jesus and he's offering that blessing to the covenant people first. Peter's message focuses on the identity and work of Jesus. But it calls for a response. If Jesus is who he says he is, 
There's something Peter's hearers need to do. If Jesus is God's Messiah, if he's the one to whom all the prophets pointed, if he embodies the covenant blessings promised to Abraham, Peter's hearers need to repent of the, of the part they played in bringing about his death. That's why Peter relentlessly exposes the Jews' involvement in Jesus' death. You handed him over to Pilate. You said no when Pilate offered to release him. You chose a murderer to be released instead of Jesus. You killed the author of life. Peter pulls no punches. He stresses his hearer's complicity in and responsibility for the death of Jesus. He wants them to see the enormity of what they've done and to acknowledge their sin. Verse 19, repent therefore and turn again that your sins may be blotted out. For there's still hope. Even when the Jews and Romans were doing their worst at the human level, God was overruling to fulfill his purposes of grace and mercy for a lost humanity. See what Peter says in verse 17. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance as did also your rulers, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. God's purposes weren't thwarted by the hostility and wickedness of men. Despite these things, even dare we say by means of them, God fulfilled all his purposes and glorified his servant Jesus. That's why forgiveness is possible. God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. And that's why Peter can assure his hearers in verse 26, God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. So where does this sermon leave us this morning? Few of us, I suspect, have Jewish blood. And we live two millennia after the climactic events of which Peter speaks. But Peter's sermon is still relevant. For a start, it reminds us that Jesus didn't live and die in a vacuum. Preparations were made for his coming over a long period the Christian gospel wasn't a newfangled message even when Peter preached. It had been anticipated for hundreds of years. It was the fulfillment of all that God had promised in the past. We also see how the whole of the Old Testament hangs together. Despite it being written over a long period by many different authors in a variety of genre, it coherently records God's progressive revelation of himself and of his purposes and points to the culmination of that revelation in the person and work of Jesus. The Bible, both the Old and the New Testaments, focus on Jesus. Do you grasp that? 
And finally, and perhaps most importantly, Peter's call for repentance is as relevant to us as it was to those who first heard it. We are not directly implicated in the death of Jesus as they were, but we too are sinners. And the ultimate sin in God's eyes is still to reject his son, to reject his Messiah, to say no to him and to the salvation which he freely offers. People have always been reluctant to accept their sinners. But I think it's a particular problem nowadays. Just mention the word sin or the word sinners in polite company and see what reaction you get. People may be willing to acknowledge they're not perfect, but they give themselves the benefit of every doubt. They regard themselves as being at least as good as the next person. The word sinner sounds so harsh. It suggests there are absolute standards of right and wrong, and who believes that nowadays? But the testimony of God's word is that we are all sinners before a holy God, sinners by nature and by practice. And unless we accept that, we shall never see our need of the rescue Jesus came to bring. Just like those first century Jews Peter addressed, we need to repent and turn again that our sins may be blotted out. Peter warned his hearers that the consequences of refusing to heed Jesus were very serious indeed. They risked excluding themselves from God's covenant family. They risked forfeiting God's blessing. And the stakes are equally high for those of us who choose to refuse King Jesus. Peter says in the following chapter, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Shall we pray? O oh Lord, we thank you for the evidence of Jesus' power at work. We thank you that he died and rose again. And now he lives to give salvation to all who will receive it. Help us to respond to him, to see him for who he is. Help us to understand what he has done. May we respond in repentance and in faith. We ask it in his name. Amen.